Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 2021 will be a year for the Arizona history books. Starting with the bang on January 6th with the riots in Washington, D.C., to the so-called audit of the 2020 elections, this year has been filled with a ton of Arizona political stories. Welcome to The Gaggle, a podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com, where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on Arizona's political news. I'm Ron Hansen, national political reporter for the Arizona Republic. And I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez, also a national politics reporter for the Republic. Today, we're breaking down the biggest stories in Arizona politics from this year. You'll be hearing from the reporters who broke and followed these stories, as well as commentary from myself and Ron. Joining us now to discuss what was arguably the biggest political story in Arizona in 2021 is Jen Fifield. She covers Phoenix and Maricopa County for the Arizona Republic and spent countless hours of her life documenting this unprecedented event. Jen, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so this was uh, sort of your life in 2021, and it certainly involved a lot of the rest of us quite a bit as well. Tell us about what made this ballot review such a a big story in, in 2021. Yes, it was definitely a big part of my year, sidetracking me off of my other stories uh, for a good portion of the whole year. I think what happened was immediately after the election, you know, Trump started questioning the results and there needed to be some sort of focal point for his claims. And that really emerged here in Arizona it attracted national attention because it was really the only pl- place past all of the election lawsuits that his claims of fraud really were able to take root and continue on past you know January 6th, past February, and all the way through the year. Uh, it attracted lawmakers from other states uh, looking to see whether they could replicate it get in Trump's good graces perhaps for future endorsements. It attracted extremism. Uh, from all across the country, everyone that believed the election was stolen was watching what happened here. So you kind of alluded to this a moment ago. How did this review happen here instead of in other places? That's a question I think we've all been asking ourselves since it happened. Really, this the political climate in Arizona and specifically Maricopa County had been bubbling up for years uh, between a fight of Republicans that supported Trump, Republicans that didn't support Trump, and even in the state legislature, uh, those two fractions of the party trying to take control. Uh, I believe that with our Senate president, Karen Fan here, there was a better chance of that happening with her in control. And once she got it started with just a few members of the legislature, 
our laws here allowing them to launch this audit through a subpoena of ballots from Maricopa County, that was all it really needed to start. The county supervisors were doing their part to try and move towards some kind of cooperative audit uh, in the beginning. That fell apart. Talk about how this played out from the county's perspective. You're right. Our our county supervisors is a Republican-controlled board. Many of them voted for Trump, and they oversaw the election in part, helped our county recorder run our election. But immediately, they started dismissing the claims of fraud. They did listen to the complaints that came in right after the election. They thought perhaps they could do some sort of an audit to prove to people once again that the election was not stolen. But then it took a a different path, as you chronicled in your series, where they couldn't support it any longer because of who was being hired, how it was being approached. And so really that's when the conflict started to really boil up between the, the supervisors and the senators here. So this thing unfolded throughout the the year without the county's cooperation. Seems like it's been fairly uh, hostile relationship for most of the year to this point. What are the implications of the poor relationship now between the state Senate and the county's board of supervisors moving forward? Well, uh, there are some actual friendships that were broken. Beyond that, this is going to have political implications. I mean, the supervisors had known these senators for years, had worked with them for years on on issues, but also just formed friendships with them. When that kind of thing is shattered, then you have to rebuild, or or you don't, and you make things work without it. Um, I'm not sure how often the, the county has to interact with the state as far as um, you know, what, when the legislature comes into session. But I do know that uh, it, it's going to be tense at, uh, you know, political rallies and functions moving forward, at least for a year or so. The, uh, the county is, of course, Arizona's most populous county, and it's also where the state capital is located. So Maricopa County officials uh, obviously bump into state legislative officials uh, with some regularity. Do we have any sense at this point how this audit might affect the legislative agenda in 2022? Do we expect the county to be making any big asks or putting off any big asks as a result of uh, what has transpired in 2021? As far as on the county's end, I don't foresee the county needing a lot from the state legislature this year. Um, You know, last year there was talks of expanding the board of supervisors, that sort of um, issue, but nothing, nothing too political that the supervisors would have to interact with them on. Now, as far as, you know, what's going to happen in the legislature, we're already seeing senators propose bills based off of what they claim they saw during the audit, um, whether that's, um, you know, narrowing the type of voting that happens, uh, mail-in voting whether that's setting up a system for fraudulent claims to be investigated within their own body, uh, you know, creating a special type of ballots. There are many different avenues they could take, and uh, we'll just have to see if they get on the floor and and get heard. One last question for you, Jen. This whole audit spectacle sort of unfolded for many months. The, uh, The biggest question I have for you is, what 
if anything, do you have as like a favorite memory or, or something that is just indelibly uh, stamped in your brain after all of this? I, I think just the sheer amount of time I spent in that freezing Coliseum sticks with me. It was it was so cold in there and um, it was a cold environment, too, for journalists, just feeling really tense and um, not very welcome there. Um, that and, and just the, the extremism that that we all witnessed whether it was, you know, the harassment in our email or, you know, the the people outside of the Coliseum who had driven here from California to sit in the 110 degree heat all day long um, with no shade and little water just to um, show their support for this function that we didn't really even understand. So, um, you know, I will remember much of this. <laughs> Can't forget it. <laughs> Jen, thank you as always for your time. Where can people follow you on Twitter? I'm a Jen A. Fifield. Before the ballot recount in Maricopa County that featured words like forensic audits and lots of conspiracy theories, supporters of former President Donald Trump wanted one thing, to stop the steal. Many Republicans were convinced, and remain so today, that the election has somehow been stolen from Trump and that President Joe Biden's victory was fraudulent. This resulted in one of the darkest days of 2021, the riot at the U.S. Capitol in Washington on January 6th. Far-right zealots wanting to prevent Congress from certifying Biden's win rushed the barriers around the Capitol and broke into the building. They marauded through the Senate chambers and hunted for politicians like House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Vice President Mike Pence. Among these rioters were more than a few Arizonans, including, infamously, Jake Angeli, better known as a QAnon shaman. Crowned with a fur cap and horns, Angeli led the way inside the Capitol, all while shouting obscenities. He even left a note on Vice President Mike Pence's desk saying, it's only a matter of time. Justice is coming. Ron, there were a lot of Arizona threads in the insurrection. Why is that? That's a really good question. I think we're all still sort of puzzling through it. But I think one thing that is clear is that as we reported at the dawn of 2020, Arizona was going to be a very important state in the 2020 election. We all knew that going into it. And the state did not disappoint. It turned into the closest race in the country in terms of the number of votes separating the major party candidates. And when you look at how the state government is structured, the Republican governor, the Republican-controlled state legislature, Uh, This kind of superstructure seemed to be the kind of thing that Republicans like Donald Trump could lean on if things got um, super close. And we also had Democrats in the election administration positions of Secretary of State and in the Maricopa County Recorder's Office with um, then-recorder Adrian Fontes. So there's this sort of clash of um, party leaders and, and expectations that I think just was sort of the perfect storm for drawing Arizona into this thing in a way that was uh, perhaps destined to wind up on the front pages of the New York Times and others. 
you know, Yvonne, you mentioned uh, Jake and Jelly, but we had another major Arizona player in all of this. That's Republican Congressman Paul Gosar. He has been one of the biggest defenders of the January 6th riots, which he has tried to recast as a day of peaceful protest. He was named by the organizer of the Stop the Steal movement as the spirit animal of that effort. The question now, with much of the country sort of focusing on his role more intently than what we do on a daily basis here in Arizona, how has this impacted his image here at home and in the eyes of the country? Well, I think it's really sort of cemented what folks probably already thought about Mr. Gosar. You know, you either thought he was in with the crazies or you think he's a true patriot and he's out there doing the Lord's work. And I think that this probably really makes you only feel more strongly about um, how to view him. Um, We should recall that the House of Representatives did censure Gosar for sort of one maneuver, one action for sort of doubling down on his behavior. He posted a a video that sort of depicted him killing a, a Democratic congresswoman and assaulting Biden. He was formally rebuked and um, he was stripped from some committee assignments. So, you know, I think this really does play to his base, probably only solidifies his standing with them, but it probably only amps up the disgust that uh, a lot of his critics already feel about him. Another major players of the lead up and on the day of January 6th include Republican Representative Andy Biggs, Republican State Representative Mark Fincham of Oro Valley, and Anthony Kern, a former state representative who is uh, running for the state Senate. As we unraveled in our five-part Democracy in Doubt series, there is a direct line from the January 6th riots to the months-long ballot recount that took place here in Maricopa County. What are the consequences, Ron, if any, for those who participated in all of this. This is something that is sort of the final shoe to drop on it, it seems, as it relates to making sense of January 6th. You know, the ongoing redistricting efforts will create congressional boundaries that will almost certainly create at least a uh, a reasonably safe district for Andy Biggs, which would seem to ensure another term back in the House of Representatives If Republicans take control of the House, as many expect, next year, Andy Biggs, who is finishing up his tenure as chair of the House Freedom Caucus, seems to be very well positioned to be in the ear of the next Speaker of the House, uh, whether it's Kevin McCarthy or someone else for the GOP. But it seems like he will be more influential in some ways than he has ever been. If you look at Mark Fincham, he secured the a uh, very coveted uh, endorsement of Trump in his bid for the Secretary of State's office. So if, as many expect, it's a Republican year, Mark Fincham will go from being the one of the more prominent critics of the 2020 election to overseeing the state's elections in the 2024 cycle. And if you look at Anthony Kern, he also got Trump's endorsement Uh, in his Senate race and helped drive out Paul Boyer, the Republican senator who resisted the uh, calls to hold the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors in contempt of the state Senate. So if you look at it for Republicans, there is no no recriminations here. They are uh, feeling as though they are vindicated and that they have public support. And they certainly point to things like Joe Biden's sagging approval ratings 
as a sign that the Republican Party is somehow on the right path. For Democrats, I think the question is, is history going to be kind and will the public punish Republicans more broadly? In Arizona's elections, Democrats are in the position of essentially requiring the independent vote share uh, to help them uh, defeat Republicans in any statewide race. And that is going to be a difficult task in 2022 as uh, folks across the board expect a fairly Republican-leaning electorate. Well, the events of that fateful day, January 6th, 2021, are still coming into clear focus with a Democratic-led investigation by the House of Representatives, even as Republicans are trying to recast this day as one of uh, peaceful protests. That committee is following reporting here in Arizona very closely, and we do know that they've interviewed key figures uh, in the 2021 so-called audit, and they have been reading the series Democracy in Doubt, which we would encourage you to read as well. The end result is still being decided by Americans, some of whom are calling out strongly for punishment for some of these participants and others who claim unfair treatment to some of these so-called patriots. always figured to be a big chapter of the nation's political story in 2020, but the state's importance to national politics didn't really fade at all in 2021. One of the reasons why? Senator Kirsten Sinema, a Democrat from Arizona. She bedeviled her Democratic supporters by steadfastly defending the legislative filibuster even as it seemed to effectively thwart much of President Joe Biden's agenda. Progressives and even moderate Democrats wanted to see her get rid of the legislative filibuster in order to quickly advance Biden's agenda. She also helped co-broker a $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill that contains many components of Biden's platform and remains the only major priority that he's gotten passed this year. She's gotten a lot of headlines for some of the other things that she's done, including a pretty vulgar social media post. She was hounded into a bathroom at Arizona State University by constituents who were upset for getting too few answers from her and giving a big thumbs down to increasing the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour as part of the COVID bill. Even Saturday Night Live skewered her. Hello, good evening. Hey, fellow Americans, how's everybody's doing? What's, what's cooking? What's good? How you doing? Got a major infrastructure bill and a historic social agenda that have to get passed. So I'm not in bringing together the Democrats like Voltron. Sure, they're all different colors, but fundamentally, they're robots. On one side, we have the moderate Democrats, Kirsten Sinema from Arizona. What do I want from this bill? I'll never tell, because I didn't come to Congress to make friends. And so far, mission accomplished. Let's focus on the two things that pulled best with all Americans. Lowering the price of prescription drugs. No. And raising taxes on billionaires. 
She battled against liberal Democrats in the House of Representatives over her infrastructure bill. She wanted it passed quickly. They wanted to hold it up in order for securing her vote for the Build Back Better plan. Meanwhile, she was among those who held up quick passage of Biden's human infrastructure bill, making demands on things like prescription drug-related matters and other areas. Cinema serves as a swing vote in a 50-50 split Senate where every single vote matters and any defection could make or break legislation. Democrats were hoping that she would return in some way, somehow, to her progressive roots. She didn't. Instead, she became known as the Democratic dissenter. We're joined now by Stacey Barchinger. Stacey is a state politics reporter at The Republic who's been following the upcoming governor's race in Arizona. In that race, former TV anchor Carrie Lake has been the clear breakout star for the Republicans. Stacey, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me again. So let's start with the basics. Why have so many Republicans thrown in for Carrie Lake so quickly in this race? Well, there's a couple of things going on here. First, she has more name recognition than anyone else. She was an anchor on Phoenix's Fox 10 for over two decades, so people already know her name. Another thing, she has set herself apart um, by embracing, at times forcefully, these false claims that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. Among the GOP slate of candidates seeking the governorship, she is way out front on this and happy to um, embrace those claims, bringing along part of the Republican Party that is still with Trump. So speaking of Trump, she earned former President Donald Trump's endorsement. There were several candidates in that race, as you just alluded to, Why is it that he came into this race so quickly with an endorsement? Well, there's a pattern of Trump rewarding candidates who agree with him that the election was stolen, despite all evidence to the contrary. Candidates across the country who agree with the former president on this are likely to get his endorsement. That's true for other folks in Arizona and um, elsewhere. She was with him on the ballot review that this was going to uncover widespread fraud enough to influence the outcome of the election, and it didn't. Um, But she still has gotten his support. It's also interesting to me that back in July, the former president came to Phoenix for a rally hosted by Turning Point, and a lot of the GOP candidates were there. And Carrie Lake got a raucous response from the crowd when she was introduced. And President Trump took notice of that. What One thing that we've all taken notice of is how Lake has been pretty antagonistic toward the media, including a run-in with you that she posted on Twitter. That, of course, got a mention on Steve Bannon's podcast. Is she receiving any different treatment from reporters Or is this more like theatrics that are intended to energize her base? I will say that I have not been treating her any different than any of the other candidates that are hoping to be Arizona's next governor. Um, It can be a little bit hard to get in touch with her, hence our uh, our run-in that you just mentioned. Um, But 
another thing that's happening here is she is mimicking the Trump playbook, which is speaking to Republicans who still are faithful to the former president, and it is making the media an enemy of the people. You know, in the run-in with her that you had just mentioned, this is the only time I have spoken to her in person. It was my first opportunity to ask her a question, and she reacted by lambasting the Arizona Republic as saying we were biased, which is not true, and come to find out, She's very upset about one of our columns that suggested that she should not be able to have a Twitter account because of some of the inappropriate things she was saying, which, of course, is something that Trump went through and that his base and his followers are still very upset about. So just another similarity between these two candidates and their campaigns. And I'm sure Carrie Lake is very fine to have those comparisons to Donald Trump. Carrie Lake, one of the big stories of 2021. I'm sure we'll be watching her in 2022. Listeners, you'll be hearing more from Stacey Barchinger, no doubt, as we get closer to the 2022 election. Thanks, as always, for joining us on The Gaggle. Where can people find more details about this? Yeah, um, it's definitely going to be a busy election season. Um, You can search for my name on azcentral.com to see all of my stories. Um, And you can also follow me on Twitter at sbarchinger. It's S-B-A-R-C-H-E-N-G-E-R. Now we turn to another unavoidable topic from the year, COVID-19. As vaccines against the disease became available, so were conversations about mandates and regulations, including possible requirements from the major public universities in the state, Arizona State University, the University of Arizona, and Northern Arizona University. Here to talk with us about that is higher education reporter for the Arizona Republic, Allison Steinbach. Allison, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. So college-aged students were eligible for the vaccine a lot sooner than K-12 students, making the debate about mandates this year mostly on college campuses, it seemed, especially in the beginning. Ultimately, how did the three schools settle this matter? The three public state universities never actually required vaccinations for the general student population, and they weren't allowed to do that under the kind of when the semester began, given state law and an executive order from the governor. The universities did encourage students to get the vaccine and made it easily available on campus, but unlike some other colleges across the country, it wasn't required um, here in Arizona. Private school Grand Canyon University also didn't require vaccines, even though they were always permitted to do so, and nor did the community colleges here. Things changed for university employees midway through the semester when ASU, U of A, and NAU announced they'd be requiring all employees and student workers to get the COVID-19 vaccine, and that was following a mandate for federal contractors from President Biden. Maricopa and Pima Community Colleges later did the same thing. The deadlines to get the vaccine or an accommodation were in January, but now that's a bit up in the air given some federal court action, and NAU and Maricopa have already paused their requirements as of mid-December. So we'll see in the coming weeks what happens with that employee vaccine requirement. Give us a sense of what this was like in terms of pushback from students or staff that didn't want to get vaccinated. 
In terms of vaccination, there wasn't a lot of pushback from on the student front just because that wasn't an actual requirement. But there was some frustration among some students about mask requirements and kind of the school's policies on that. Um, so the three state universities did require everyone to wear masks in certain indoor places like classrooms and places where people couldn't socially distance. And there was some frustration about that. Um, but I think for the most part, people just wanted to be in person. So people kind of agreed to do that. Um, and that that policy lasted through the semester. There was some concern kind of before the semester began since the, the Delta variant was really contagious and it was driving up case numbers across the state um, and particularly kind of in, in Maricopa County. Um, but Arizona's universities did pretty well with COVID cases this fall semester. Um, midway through the semester, when we kind of checked in more in depth, none of the major universities had had any significant outbreaks or any issues found through testing or through wastewater analysis. Even GCU, which didn't require masks and didn't require any vaccines, they also had pretty pretty okay case numbers. Um, so that was that was good to see at the universities this fall semester. So we have a new variant on the scene, the Omicron variant. COVID cases are prevalent in Arizona, including several Omicron cases already identified. What does this mean for the major universities in the next semester and moving forward? There's not too much word yet from the universities on what they're going to do next semester, but I expect employee vaccination will continue to be a topic of interest, kind of depending what happens in the courts nationally with those requirements. Students this semester, for the most part, seemed really happy to be back on campus, living in dorms, taking classes in person instead of online, often from their homes. And universities really do want to keep that in place. So I wouldn't be surprised to see some sort of mitigation measures stay in place just to try to protect the in-person school for the spring semester. Um, how that looks with the new variant and whatever happens with cases after the holiday and semester break, we'll just have to see what happens. All right. That is Allison Steinbach, higher education reporter for The Republic. Thanks, as always, for joining us on The Gaggle. Where can people find you on Twitter? Thank you so much. I'm on Twitter at Ali Steinbach, A-L-I-S-T-E-I-N-B-A-C-H. That's it for today and for the year, Gaggle listeners. Thanks so much for following Arizona politics alongside us in 2021. It was a year to remember. We will be out next week for the holidays, but back soon for another big year of important news, election updates, and stories in 2022. The Gaggle wants to thank Jen Fifield, Stacey Barchinger, and Allison Steinbach for helping us recap the most pressing stories of the year as well as all of the guests of The Gaggle that we've had on over the last 12 months. This week's episode was edited and produced by Amanda Liberto and Kaylee Monahan with help from Manny Lozano. Amanda and Kaylee joined The Gaggle this year and will be saying goodbye to Manny at the end of this year. Best of luck with your next moves, and thanks everyone for your work on the podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. And I'm at Yvonne Winget. Please share the gaggle with a friend and make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Have a safe holiday and we'll see you next year. <laughs>